Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Dr. Joel Byers, AccuWeather founder and CEO. Joel is a lifelong meteorologist and considered the father of the commercial meteorology industry. Joel, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, you founded AccuWeather back in 1962. What made building a commercial weather business and really kind of starting the industry possible back then? Well, I guess most people thought it wasn't possible. (laughs) People thought I was crazy because, of course, all weather forecasts and data were free from the government. The National Weather Service, then called the U.S. Weather Bureau, had over 5,000 employees and all the information and so on. And it was just me. How was I going to be able to charge customers for weather forecasts when they were free? And so the whole concept was virtually unknown, but I called 25,000 prospects before I had 100 paying customers. So when you think about it, I had 24,900 rejections. And I <laughs> selling the idea that I could provide forecasts that were more accurate had more value than they could get for free, sufficient value, and it was worth them paying for. Nowadays, there are a lot of businesses built on different types of government data. Was there some sort of insight that you had that maybe the government data was not going to get good enough in time? Or what was the insight that you had to go all in on creating AccuWeather? I believed in myself and my forecasting skills. I had my 10,000 hours on before I got to Penn State as an undergraduate in meteorology. Penn State was the only place I could afford to attend, but luckily it had the best meteorological program in the world. So I got a great education, great mentorship, three degrees here, and taught for 21 years. This was my second year as a graduate student, and I just believed in myself that I could provide forecasts that were more accurate that people could get. For example, ski areas. I provided them with forecasts that were tailored right to the ski area, and I understood the snowmaking process, so I was able to tell them when they could make good snow, so they should have the crews in. It turned out the snowmaking depended not only temperature, but also on humidity and some other factors. So I helped them operate more efficiently. I provided forecasts that were more accurate, and I updated them. So there was value there. What they were paying me, they would recoup in the value by 10, 20, or 50 times. And that's really been the story of selling my service all along. The value, because it's hard to sell this concept. Why should people pay? They think it's free. They don't understand. But we demonstrate time after time that they're going to get back 10, 20, 100, 1,000 times what they're paying AccuWeather. Now, AccuWeather is a 60-year-old business. And I asked a similar question to Jack Dangerman, who's the CEO of Esri, when he was on the World of Das podcast. I know Jack. I've met with him several times. You guys are both legends. And I mean, AccuWeather, it's older than Apple. It's older than Microsoft. It's older than Oracle. What is the secret to kind of building an enduring company? Well, first of all, have a vision, have a purpose that everybody is committed to. And our vision and our mission is to save lives, keep people safer, help people and companies make better decisions. And we've saved tens of thousands of lives in our history, kept hundreds of thousands, if not millions, safe, and have allowed companies to save hundreds of billions of dollars by minimizing losses, protecting their people, and making better decisions. So our people are dedicated to that. And we've had dozens and dozens of people that spent their whole life working at AccuWeather. 
that's so unusual today. We have probably still 15 or 20 people who are my students. I stopped teaching in 1981. Two years ago, I gave retirement dinners for Elliot Abrams, 52 years, Jim Kander, 40 years, Ken Clark, four and a half. So we've had people that have been dedicated to our mission for a long time, very little turnover, but importantly, they evolve. I like to say we're a 60-year-old startup and we need (laughs) it every day. I believe your first client was a utility company. I like the ski resort. That's a really great customer. But how do you convince this set of customers, this utility companies to move to you and get the more accurate weather data? Well, here is a forecast. We'll talk about that more later. So there's data and there's current conditions and there's a forecast. We'll get more that later. Good point. But yeah. what I provided will forecast. And once you enter the realm of forecasting, you're in a different realm. So what I did was provide very specific temperature forecast hour by hour for the locations that they needed, which was correlated then to energy usage, how much energy they would need to get through the pipeline. There were different ways of getting the energy at different costs. So it was an operations kind of thing where they had to make the best decision to maximize profits. And it all depended on temperature. And I helped them with that. That makes sense. I agree there certainly wasn't an overnight success. This is a long success in the making. It's a kind of a get rich slowly type of business. What advice would you give to other kind of data entrepreneurs who are trying to create a market? I've been proud of the fact that we've been in business 60 years and we've had 57 of us 60 years with an increase in revenue. We've only had three years, 2001, 2009, and the COVID year that saw a decline in revenue from the year before. And we're back on double-digit growth. So I like growing steadily. You can manage it. There's always new creativity. There's new products coming out. We're developing all the time, constantly R&D, and going to our customers. We serve more than half of Fortune 500 companies. We serve 800 radio stations and 800 newspapers, over 100 television stations. But that's local media. The biggest part of our business now is serving the world through our apps and AccuWeather.com. And we're really a media company supported by advertising and now increasingly subscription services with 160 million unique users. And we're loaded on two and a half billion cell phones around the world. Initially, you relied on the channel to reach consumers. You sold to, as you mentioned, cable stations, cable networks, and newspapers. Well, we really didn't got much cable. The Weather Channel started there, our competitor. We have the Accurate Network. But we did sell to television stations, newspapers, radio. That was an important component of our business in the beginning. And it's interesting, the AccuWeather name gave them an advantage. So we sold it exclusively to a television station, a radio station, because AccuWeather says accuracy plus weather equals AccuWeather. And we backed it up with a better forecast. So it helped and helps them to today with their ratings because they have the most accurate forecast, the most useful and valuable forecast you can get. At some point, you decide to kind of go direct to the consumer, which in some ways kind of competes with your own customers. How did you make that decision and what went into making it? I imagine it was a difficult decision to do that. Well, it was interesting. Back in the early, mid-90s, the internet came along, and we had been using the internet to serve some of our government clients from the 80s, and there was a big debate among us and some competitors that, well, if we put our forecast on the internet, 
then people aren't going to pay us. I mean, the customers aren't going to pay us anymore. So some people chose not to do it. We said, well, the world's changed. We have to do it. Let's just do the best job we can. (laughs) And we had the name too, because all our media partners were promoting our name. So people immediately recognized AccuWeather. Although interestingly, at that point, some people thought that AccuWeather was just a fancy name the television station was using. They didn't realize it was really a company. But over time, that evolved. And so it wasn't really competition. I mean, in many markets now, most we have more users than the television station or the radio station through our digital. So we've partnered as appropriate. We reinforce each other. Remember, these stations have AccuWeather exclusively. They haven't looked at it as competition. Neither have we. Got it. Okay. Now, AccuWeather is also a super successful family business. I believe at one point, your brother was also the CEO, and you've had many other family members at the company. What is it like to be kind of more of this kind of like privately held family business, building this business for so long? Obviously, it was me as an entrepreneur. At first, it was just me, and then it was hiring people. And of course, all my kids worked in the business at some point, whether it was stuffing envelopes and licking and mailing to try and get new customers working in the business. My oldest son has been on the AccuWeather board for six or seven, eight years. He's an entrepreneur in his own right, very successful with his own business. And Barry and Evan, my two brothers, were always involved. Barry was, I did appoint him CEO for a number of years, but as a single dad, I was raising my son. He since retired. He was appointed, as you know, to be the head of NOAA. It never got confirmed by the Senate and contentious political kind of situation, unfortunately, that he withdrew his nomination after, I think, being approved by the committee, the Senate committee, three times. And that's too bad because he would have been a great head for NOAA and for the public. But anyway, my youngest brother, Evan, still works part-time, and he's been a great contributor to the company as well. This is really the only job he ever had, but he's done a great job. Oh, that's amazing. What's your kind of takeaway from or learning from like the political process through what your brother went through? You'll have to talk to him about that. (laughs) I'm sure he found it very frustrating. I mean, he had widespread backing from all the powers of be at the American Meteorological Society in the government itself. They knew that he would have really moved the whole enterprise forward, but it is what it is. But I keep away from that and run my business and charitable things I'm involved in and so on and stick to that. It seems like more and more ability to understand the weather is happening from space. There's more satellites gathering lots of different types of information. There's more LIDAR coming out, et cetera. How do you think that's going to affect understanding what's going on with the weather, what's going on in the earth in the future? Well, clearly, the more observations we get, the more the density and frequency of observation improves, the more accurate the models will be. Obviously, forecast computer models depend on the reliability of the current conditions and the input. And so as we get more and better data, the models should improve. But the key thing is there's statistical accuracy and there's communications and the real value of the forecast. So AccuWeather has always been at the forefront of statistical superiority. Almost every study has shown that we're the most accurate when you measure the temperature, the wind, the precipitation compared to all other sources. That's what I've dedicated my life to, using all the available models and data and information to make the best forecast. 
And Nate Silver in the book, The Signal and the Noise, pointed out that we and IBM, which owns the weather company, are right up there at the top. We win more than they do, apart from the rest. Okay, so what's really important that so few people understand is the communications of the forecast. Nate Silver talked about the statistical accuracy and, by the way, pointed out that weather forecasting has made far more progress in forecasting than any other field. He examined, and that was really part of his book and his study, and he's right. It's an amazing story. However, AccuWeather distances itself significantly from all other companies, and this is the secret sauce. By understanding the art and science of forecasting. And very few people today understand that. The CDC has lost a lot of credibility because they didn't understand it. Let me give you an example. When you issue a forecast, it's different than what happened or what has happened. It's about the future and nobody knows if it's going to be right or wrong. So you want to build trust. You want to have people make the right decisions. You have to think about how that forecast is going to look after the fact. How's it going to look 24 hours later, a week later? And so many forecasters don't think of that. They issue what they think is the best forecast. Don't think of the wording and how it might look in three hours or 24 hours. Let me give you one example of your medic. There was a snowstorm in New York City about three weeks ago. AccuWeather was the first to put accumulations in of any of the various sources, 8 to 12 inches. We said 8 to 12 inches. We were about 18 to 24 hours before anybody put another accumulation, the Fox Weather, weather Weather.com, Weather Channel, and so on, National Weather Service. So we had 8 to 12. And then different models came in. One model, a couple of them actually, showed there'd be no snow. The storm was going out to sea. So some people then put amounts in after we did a day or so later, and then he took them out. Storm's going to miss. And then a model came in and showed 22 inches of snow. So people went 18 up to the storm, four days during the storm till it was over. AccuWeather held to 8 to 12. But other people were saying everything from zero to 18. Flip-flop. I assume they kept changing the forecast back and forth and stuff. Kept changing it back and forth. So it comes down to judgment. We held 8 to 12. Sure, these other models were coming in, but how reliable were they? How credible We had the credibility. That's how we build trust over time. The final accumulation was nine to 12 inches. And we never changed through the whole five days. And then there's the case of Ida and the flooding in New York. So everybody predicted significant rain, but we said four to eight inches of rain with a storm max of 12. Now, storm max is an AccuWeather invention. And so that implied the heaviest rainfall ever in New York City. And we said, Starting Monday, the rain occurred, I think it was Thursday night, Wednesday night or Thursday night. But anyway, starting three days ahead, we said, this is going to be a record rain that's going to cause flooding in the city and around the city, which will threaten lives. And then we went further, 36 hours in advance. We said the rain is going to come in fast and furious tomorrow evening, not giving people much time to react. It's going to threaten lives and property. So. We said that. Other people just predicted heavy rain with possible flooding. So the mayor went on television that night and was surprised. But the towns around, our clients around New York, were not surprised because they knew. Then you have the snowstorm in eastern Virginia. 
where people were trapped on I-95 in a car for 24 hours. And we weren't the only people that predicted heavy snow. We predicted a little more. I think we went 6 to 12, and other people were 4 to 7 or some whatever. doesn't matter. The point is everybody predicted snow. But what we said is this snow coming in quickly on warm ground will cause chaos on the highways, and some roads will be closed. Now, our clients, hearing that, kept their trucks off the road. So this is communication. This is two steps beyond Nate Silver, the signal and the noise. This is understanding how the impact of the forecast, how the forecast is going to be looked at after the fact, how to build credibility, send the message that people make the right decision. And that's really what it's all about. And that's really AccuWeather's legacy. It's the invention of this concept of the art and science of prediction, considering how it's going to look after the fact, are people going to get the right message, are they going to make the right decision? And that's part of our secret sauce, because that has as much value. For example, when they compare the accuracy of a forecast, so maybe our competitors say, hi, tomorrow, 34 degrees, and we predict 35, and the actual high is 34. So statistically, they win. 34, 35. But the AccuWeather forecast, high tomorrow, 35 in the morning, strong northerly winds and sharply falling temperatures in the afternoon through the 20s into the teens will cause slush and water to freeze, causing icy spots. Now, they win statistically, but we won overwhelmingly on the message. Do you think most of these forecasters, let's say forecasting data, are most people who are forecasting on weather have the same underlying data, and then it's just really about who makes the better forecast using the same data? Or is there some sort of proprietary data that you can get access to that allows you to make better forecasts? Well, it's all of the above. We bring more weather data, more models into our facility in State College, Pennsylvania than any other place on the planet. And some of this is a result of relationships we've developed over more than a decade with foreign governments and so on. But it's how that data is processed, how it's used, how the models are weighted. Listen, we have 196 models that all give somewhat different results for the world. So it's how you weight them, how you weight the models for temperature in the three to five day period for Cleveland may be different than what you're weighting precipitation in Chicago on the eight to 10 day period and so on. So it's AI and it's how all that's done and that's part of the secret sauce. And then you come out with a number, the high 34, 35, which we win on statistically, but the value is far more than that. It's the examples I just gave you. It's starting with the most accurate forecast, the greatest understanding, but then you have to communicate it to customers, to the public, so they make the right decision because there's so much data, so much output, you have to decide what and how to message it so it has the greatest value. And that's what we do, I think, better than anybody, whether it's in weather or in forecasting in general, because so many things, people don't realize many times when they're making a forecast. So there's past, we watch the news, almost everything is past or current. The only thing on the news is the forecast about the weather. But other people venture into forecasting and don't even realize it. For example, on Wall Street, oh, we don't try and time the market. We don't make a forecast 
well, then why is the mix different than the S&P 500? Why are they overweighting Microsoft? Sure, they're making a forecast that Microsoft is going to outperform, and so they're going to beat the S&P. They're all making forecasts, whether they admit it or even realize it or not. Is there any type of like, if you had your own constellation of balloons and sensors all over the globe, would there be any type of proprietary data that you could gather about the weather that would give you this like massive advantage? Or do you think it would just be such a small advantage, it wouldn't be worth the effort? It absolutely is not worth the effort. Now, that's not to say that the satellites for private companies that are going to have more frequent soundings, basically, and with greater density will not have value, they will. But we've made enormous strides already in weather forecasting. But my argument is 97% of what's available is to companies and businesses that we can provide isn't being used. Okay, got it. How does the degradation of the forecast change over time? Obviously, if I'm going to forecast the weather one second out, I'm going to be more accurate than I'm going to forecast one hour out, which is going to be more accurate than one day out, which will be more accurate than one week out. How does it degradate over time? Well, that's well stated. I mean, I used basically something like that when I taught my class in forecasting back in the 1960s. You're exactly right. You look out the window and you forecast for one second from now exactly what you see, and you're going to be right 99.999% of the time. And so it does degrade with time. So when I started in this business, the forecasts that were available to the public and everybody else was just today, tonight, and tomorrow from the U.S. Weather Bureau. I predicted today, tonight, tomorrow, and the third day, and that added value. And then I also, my clients gave a specific outlook for the fourth and fifth day. Now, twice a week on Tuesday and Friday, the government would issue a five-day forecast, which was for the three to five-day period, it would be above normal or below both the temperature and precinct, whatever that meant. So <laughs> we've always been ahead. I didn't want to forecast beyond where there was statistical benefit. By that, I mean, how accurate can you be if you take the current trend and normals, the 30-year average, and you make a guess out there? So we were the first to introduce a seven-day, a 10, a 15, a 20, 25, 30, and now we have 90 days day by day available to our businesses. Even on our app, you can get a forecast day by day out for 45 days on the AccuWeather app. How much should you rely on, let's say I have a big event and let's say AccuWeather says five days from now it's going to rain or something like that. Certainly for five hours from now, if AccuWeather says it's going to rain, I may decide to go get some tenting or something. But if it's five days from now and it says it's going to rain, how much should I rely on that versus if there's a cost to getting a tent, et cetera? How should one make these calculations with time? Well, you have to make that decision based on the cost and what do you think the benefit is. But I can say this, you're exactly right. As you get further out, the precision and the reliability of the forecast deteriorates, but there is still value there, significant value out. And even out to 80 or 85th or 90th day, particularly if you take the average of several days around it, there is greater value there than you can guess if you didn't have access to AccuWeather. That's the point. So I'm not going to stand here and say that there's a lot of value in the forecast on the 80th day or even on your app on the 42nd day. There isn't. But if I'm going to Miami 
I wonder how warm or cold it's going to be right now in April of 35, 40 days away. It's going to give an indication that, hey, it's going to be normally the high this time of year is 82. Well, it's only going to be 76. It's going to be cooler than normal. Okay. That's how it's going to help me. I'm really interested in like extreme weather events that happen, both when they're predicted and they happen, when they're predicted and they don't happen, when they're not predicted, they happen. And so there's both false positives and false negatives that happen in extreme weather events or that cause significant damage. Sometimes people overprepare for things and maybe we shouldn't have overprepared. Often we underprepare for things like, let's say, Hurricane Katrina or something like that that came around. Where do you see that moving in the future and how do we have both fewer false positives and fewer false negatives, which are obviously both very costly? It's very, very simple. Just use the AccuWeather forecast. Okay. <laughs> Fact is that we're authentic. Our mission, we have so many people, millions, who depend on and make decisions based on our forecasts and our warnings that we feel an immense responsibility to not overhype or underpredict severe weather of any sort. Hurricane Katrina, we saved over 10,000 lives. We're the only ones that predicted what would happen. We predicted for three days ahead. We interviewed by Geralda, all the networks, because we were saying 50 to 80% of the city of New Orleans would be underwater for days or weeks. And when we were called on that, because the National Hurricane Center and everybody else was just predicting a rainstorm, how can you do this? You're crying wolf. So we know what it is to cry wolf. These are quotes. And we're not crying wolf. As it turned out, that's what happened. And we got so many emails and cards from people say, I got my grandmother out. I got my aunt out in time. Thanks so much. We're ever indebted to you. Because that's what we do. So many cases like that. The tornadoes that had devastating effects across the Midwest and so on. We predicted every one of those. The average advance notice that we give our clients on tornado warnings is 16 minutes. The National Weather Service severe weather zone, nine minutes. Those extra seconds matter. We have a false alarm rate of under 20%. The National Weather Service, 77%. Wow. So these are significant differences. We tend to name a point out that hurricane's going to be named 18 to 24 hours before the National Hurricanes. We do not overhype, but some media overhypes. And now that AccuWeather is also a media company, the incentives of media companies is to overhype. You want to overhype everything. If it bleeds, it leads. How do you fight against those incentives? Because that's our mission. That's our culture is to be authentic. We've been here for 60 years. We're going to be here for 60 more. We're privately held and we don't have to. I'm the principal owner. I don't have to make a profit every quarter. I'm taking a long view. And our word and our reputation is what it's all about. A lot of these media companies, their stock is moving every single quarter. The CEO would get fired if they have two quarters in a row of bad performance of these other media companies. But you have this advantage where you can take a much longer view. You can do, okay, I'm doing something for the long term. I'm making a long term decision for the health of the business. I don't have to make a quarter by quarter decision. Yeah, and we're in the business of providing forecasts that people make decisions on 
company makes decisions many times, tens of millions of dollars are at stake. Authenticity and being as precise and helping them make the right decision is what we are focused on. Okay, cool. This is great. Now, a couple of personal questions. I know that you wanted to be a meteorologist, I think at the age of seven, and you basically stayed this course like your entire life. That is pretty rare in today's world. Why do you think it happens so rarely for people? Why do you think people don't know like early on in their life? You found your passion way quicker than almost anyone I've ever met. Why do you think this happens so rarely? Well, first, let me say that a lot of great weather forecasters found that passion before they were 10. Interesting. Okay. It's common on weather forecasters. Well, I would say it's common, but it's certainly not rare. Elliot Abrams, who worked for me 52 years, same thing. I mean, there's probably at least a dozen, probably a few dozen forecasters at AccuWeather that have spent their lives here who knew before they were 10, they wanted to be a weather forecaster. Now, why is it so rare? Well, I don't think it's as rare as people think. If parents would listen to their children, my daughter, Erica, and I have eight children, 10 grandchildren. So Erica went to college to be an accountant and so on and so forth. And when she was done, she said, I want to go to hairdresser school, Tony and Guy. And so, okay, fine. But I knew, and was like, my goodness, she always was playing with Barbie dolls and doing her hair a different way. She was dyeing her hair every other day. <laughs> it was obvious in retrospect <laughs> to her and to me. I think it's true of a lot of kids. Parents often hear what they want to hear. They want to direct the child in a certain way, creates uncertainty. Sure, a lot of kids don't know. They have a lot of different interests. But one of those interests is where they'll wind up if they let themselves dream and go in that direction. I think there's so many controls in society and so many things kids think they're supposed to do. So every child has a dream. Help that child realize his or her dream is really the best thing I can say on this whole conversation. This is great. Now, speaking of children, I mean, you founded the Dad's Resource Center in Pennsylvania. If there's one important topic that every dad could think of from parenting, what should it be? Be as involved in your children's lives as you possibly can be. They grow up so quickly. And that's the mission of all of us in life is to be as good a parent as possible. The Dad's Resource Center is really to help single fathers cope when all of a sudden they're thrown into the unexpected role of being a single father. That's the biggest crisis we have in this country. The biggest cost of society, actually 4% of GDP per year because of the lack of father involvement in the lives of children. How the system, the court system, and the government system is so biased that keeps fathers out once they're separated or divorced. Many fathers don't stand up for their responsibility, but so many more do want to get involved and they fight the system, try and fight the system. They don't have the resources to do so. This is a huge bias in society that nobody talks about. In my lifetime, I've seen so many prejudices and bias eliminated and at least uncovered and discussed and a lot of progress. Of course, there's still discrimination of all sorts, but it's talked about, it's been reduced, but not about single fathers, deadbeat dads, and all the kinds of things that are said about single fathers and how they're marginalized 
and kept from their children is disgraceful in society today. And I've got the statistics, they're unbelievable. But one in three children in this country are growing up without the father involved actively in their lives, one in three. And when both parents are not involved in a child's life, they're twice as likely to become involved with drugs. They're going to earn $20,000 a year, nearly a million dollars in their lifetime. They're less likely to go to college by significant percentage. And I can quote 25 other statistics like that. This adds up to 4% of the GDP of this nation. It's a drain on all kinds of government programs. And the government perpetuates it because the court system perpetuated. We did a study in Pennsylvania of 700 custody cases selected at random where both parents were fighting for custody. Now, you would think it would come out 50-50, but 69% of the time went to the mother, 31% to that. These are times, cases where both parents went in the court, spent tens of thousands of dollars on lawyers and so on, and it still came out 69-31. Think of all the other that didn't go to court because the lawyers say, you're never going to win. You're going to spend all this money, settle for every other weekend and dinner Wednesday night. And that's what happens. And even when the fathers want to play a bigger role, and so they're often alienated and don't play a significant role in their children's life. And this is the biggest crisis this country is facing, and no one talks about it. And it's perpetuated by the court systems, by children and youth organizations, which, by the way, we also studied that in Pennsylvania. 82% of the employees of children and youth in Pennsylvania are female, 18% are male. Now, that by itself doesn't mean there's bias, but it does suggest that a father's point of view isn't heard, and we have so many examples of that. And I can go on and on, but it is a serious problem that does need to be discussed. Interesting. It does seem like that the average parent today does spend a lot more time with their kids. Both fathers and mothers spend a lot more time with their kids today than maybe did 30, 40 years ago. Is there a point where it's like, it's too much time? I don't believe that. I'll tell you what. And by the way, that's for intact families. But the one third that aren't intact, that's definitely not the case. It's biased. But wait a minute. There's electronics today. So the parents are on the electronics. The kids are on electronics. Oftentimes, they're not really with Good the point. kid and the parent. They're there superficially. You're both at the dinner table, but you're both checking your phones or something like They're that. They're not 100% meaningfully engaged. Okay, good really point. We try to find out what's going on in the child's life and the child's head. So I don't buy that for a minute. In some ways, they're less involved. They know less about what's going on, whether it's about drugs or whatever the, is going on out there, whatever's going on on Facebook or whatever they're involved in. Okay, cool. This is really, really interesting. Okay, last question we ask all of our guests. What is the conventional wisdom or advice that you think is generally bad advice? What I've always told my kids, assume that tomorrow will have continuity from today. And they always tease me. I predicted the stock market crash in 1987. In fact, I had a letter in Barron's that predicted it ran a week or two ahead of time. And of course, the market fell 23% in one day. And I've always told my kids, there's no guarantee of continuity. You could wake up tomorrow and the world may have changed. And they teased me until COVID came. A couple of them pinged me when the war started in the Ukraine. 
That's the most important advice. Again, it's prediction. We've lived through the last several decades, and I told you, you're living in the best of time humanity has ever seen. Up until 600 years ago, there was very little progress. The average life expectancy was 28 and a half, and it didn't change at all until about the 1400s. And then there's been progress and knowledge doubled every 100 years, and then it doubled every 50, and now it's doubling, I don't know, every month, and eventually it'll be every day, and who knows, maybe every minute. So what is all that going to mean? It's going to mean there's going to be huge change in our lives. There's accelerating hyperbolic change in all areas. And we're not even aware of it. It hasn't even impacted us yet, but it's going to hit us in different ways. And so be prepared for tremendous change. But people are less prepared for change than ever before because they've had it so good. We haven't had a fight for our next meal. We haven't had to beat people back, invaders from our caves, keep the tigers at bay, worry about zero outside. We don't have any food. We don't have anything to keep us warm. We're out of kindling. We can't even build a fire. We haven't had to worry about any of that. Hopefully we don't in our lifetime, but we've had it very easy and there's going to be lots of change. coming. How much time should we prepare for? I mean, these events are maybe when you combine all of these events, they're statistically very probable to happen. But for any individual event, there's very, very low probability of it happening. So it's hard to prepare for any one type of event, especially if it's many, many years out. How should we think about that? How should we have a prepared mind for this changing world? Well, there's certain things we can all do. I mean, very few people have any gold. I talk to people, that's interesting, because price of gold obviously is up over 100 times from 1933, but people buy stocks. But when you compare the growth and what people had, they're not too far off, but nobody has gold. Gold is insurance. You have fire insurance, you have auto insurance, you have life insurance, but you have no insurance against destruction of the currency. People in Russia that have gold are better off because the ruble obviously is crashing towards zero and their money is wiped out. There are things everybody can do to think about what would I do tomorrow if all of a sudden my money was worthless, the supermarkets closed down for 90 days, or who knows what. I'm not able to say what you would do or anybody should do, but it's a way of thinking. Most people think about tomorrow what they're going to do next week I'm going on vacation, and so on and so forth. They assume that everything around them will be identical to what it is now. Because people, it comes back to forecast. People don't really forecast. They don't want to. They're incapable because it's a special art and science. So my advice is, as best each person can handle that, is to consider how life might change What kind of risks are there to me or my family? And then I can choose whether I might do anything about that or not. Okay. This is awesome. Well, thank you, Joe Myers, CEO and founder of AccuWeather. Thank you so much for being with us on World of DAS. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure too. Good to see you, 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.